Thank you all for having me tonight. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to be continuing on in Ecclesiastes this evening. So if you'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes 11.7 to 12.8. It's on page 559 of the Pew Bibles. I'm told there's also space for you to take notes, if you will, on the back of the announcements sheet. So we're coming to the last passage before Kohela's final conclusion. He's been our unflinching guide, walking us through and sitting with us in the midst of life's perplexities. With him, we've been searching. It's one of the key themes that goes throughout. I went to find, looking for. He's searching for meaning to this life under the sun. He's trying to see how it all fits together. Kind of looking for a sort of key that's going to help us make sense of it all. Have we found it? No. Instead, there's this refrain that we keep hearing. We hear it for the first time. It's the second verse of the book. And then we hear it for the last time at the end of our passage today. It kind of bookends our journey with Koheleth. And the refrain is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all a vapor. It can't grab a hold of it. It can't give us the meaning to life under the sun. It can't make sense of it all. It won't help us make sense of the pain, the hardships, the difficulties, the wickedness that we experience in this life. Yet throughout the book, we hear another refrain. Rejoice. Enjoy. Have joy. We think, rejoice? Really? With all this other stuff that you're talking about? We're told no fewer than seven times prior to our passage that we're to rejoice and find enjoyment in our lives under the sun. In our work, in eating, drinking, in our possessions, in our spouse. In all but one of these, Kohelet directly ties it to the source of the joy being God. And the things being enjoyed as being gifts from God. He's the source of our joy, and he's the source of what we enjoy. So how do these two things actually fit together? With all the difficulties in life, and with no guarantee that we'll ever know why any of it's happening. How can we truly enjoy life? Or for some of us, a better question might be whether we can actually enjoy life at all, in any true sense. So these are the questions we want to bring to our text today. So read with me, Ecclesiastes 11.7 to 12.8. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened 
and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear and understand. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So who here has seen The Little Mermaid? Most people, but not everyone. Not recommending it, I'm just commenting on it. There's a scene where Ariel in Flounder, who isn't a flounder, by the way, come up to scuttle the seagull. They, they have some human loot that they just found. They come and bring a fork to him. And Scuttle's the expert on all things human. So he's going to tell them what it's about. They show him the fork and he says it's a dingle hopper. Humans use it to straighten out baby's hair. He shows on himself. He twists it up there and pulls it out. They have feathers, not hair, but it works in cartoons, right? Then they show him a pipe and he says it's a banded bulbous snarf blat that humans would use to make music. And he blows out of it, and dirt pops out, and then a little tiny flower pops up. Well, later in the movie, when Ariel has legs, sorry to spoil that for you if any of you haven't seen it and are planning on it, she's going to have dinner with the prince and another guy. I don't know if it's his servant or who the other guy is. It's been a while. But what she does while she's there, she sits down to dinner, and she sees the... She sees the dingle hopper sitting on the table. So she grabs it. She starts combing out her hair with it until they give her funny looks. And then she just kind of puts it back down and sits there. Then the guy goes to light a pipe and she grabs it and she blows it out and ash flies everywhere. So why does this happen? Ariel doesn't use the fork or the pipe for what they were meant to be used for. Because she doesn't know why they were created. Our lives can be a lot like that. Instead of not knowing what a fork or a pipe is used for, we don't know how life is to be lived in order to find the joy that we're actually meant to have in it. We look around and we find little reason to rejoice. We, find, we fail to find true joy because we fail to remember our Creator. Practically living much of our lives like He doesn't exist and taking for granted the things he's done for us. But we're going to be shown this morning that life is meant to be enjoyed. 
And in order to truly enjoy life, we must remember our Creator before it's too late. First, we need to see that life is meant to be enjoyed. If you look with me at verses 7 and 8, chapter 11. It says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. These two verses kind of serve as a preface for everything that's going to come after. The two verbs in verse 8, rejoice and remember, are going to be turned into commands in 11.9 and then 12.1, respectively. And Koheleth is using light and darkness as a metaphor for life and kind of youth on one hand and old age and ultimately death on the other. And those are topics that he's going to actually address as we continue to go on. So how is he setting the tone for the rest of the passage? He begins, light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Notice how he's describing these things. It's like he's done throughout Ecclesiastes. He doesn't just say, light's good. Right? He uses experiential words. Light is sweet. It's to be tasted and savored. It's pleasant to see the sun. It's pleasing. It feels good. We just moved here in June, so we haven't been through a Wisconsin winter yet. Everyone tells me they're really long. But I don't know if they're sunny. Something I haven't found out yet. I grew up in northeast Indiana, and the winters are shorter, but they are gray. We got maybe three days out of the winter where the sun actually shined. And those three days, you'd want to go outside, even if it's cold, because it feels good. So in that, you kind of get this experience of what he's saying. It should be pleasing for us. So is that why we should rejoice all the days of our lives? Because light is sweet and it's pleasant to see the sun. That sounds like what he's saying, doesn't it? That we should enjoy life because life is good. The t-shirts tell us that everywhere we go. Life is good with all the camping pictures outside, seeing a picture in a canoe. Life is good. Those guys that make those t-shirts actually wrote a book, too. It's called Life is Good, the book. And the premise for it is that if you could just unleash the power of optimism, then we could enjoy life. But what do we do when life and light don't seem so sweet? What do we do when life tastes bitter? What do we do when we see the sun and instead of enjoying it, we want to close the blackout curtains, crawl back in bed with no plans of getting back up? Is Koheleth wrong? Throughout the Sermon of Ecclesiastes, he's, he's just walked into stuff. He hasn't shied away from any of the realities we face. He's just faced them head on. So is he doing something different here? Because it sounds like he's saying life's a bunch of rainbows and butterflies, right? I don't think so. If you look again at verse 8, I think the word so there is actually better understood as for. The Hebrew word can, can go either way, depending on how you're interpreting it. So instead of saying, because light is sweet and seeing the sun is pleasant, the result is that we should enjoy life. It kind of flips it around. It says, because we should enjoy life, the result is that we can savor the light. It reverses the order and puts the 
metaphorical cart back behind the metaphorical horse. And as we'll see later in this passage, Koheleth has creation and the creator in mind. He's saying that God created life to be enjoyed. And because he wants us to enjoy life, he made it so that light can be savored. So that to feel the sun, to see the sun can feel good. He's not saying that we always do experience it that way since the fall. But they were meant to be experienced that way. There are a couple things here that I think are really important to notice. First, we're to rejoice all of our years. That doesn't mean at least once a year. If you rejoice, then you're good. Covered that year, move on, wait for the next one. So we're meant to rejoice all the time, rejoice continually. This is important because I think we miss out on a lot of days. We look forward to certain things. We look forward to the Packers game. Look forward to spending some time at the cabin, the start of hunting season, spearing a huge sturgeon. I was watching videos of that, and it looks awesome, and I would really like to do it. Look forward to graduation if we're in school, finally getting a certain job, dating the right person, our wedding day, starting a family. Or if those things aren't happening, Instead of looking forward to them, we're actually lamenting the fact that they're not happening. You know what? Most of our lives are not made up of those big events. Not that those are bad things. They're good things. But that's not most of our life. The more we focus on them, the more we actually end up missing out on the rest of the days. The rest of the days that actually add up to the vast majority of our lives. The other thing to notice goes right along with this. We're to enjoy the small things. He doesn't mention a major life event there. What does he mention? Light. Seeing the sun. Things that we get to experience on a regular basis. Most of life is made up of regular things. Not saying those are unimportant. <laughs> they're important things, but they're regular things. We often ignore the regular things that we can and should be grateful for. The regular things that we would actually enjoy if we'd pay attention and recognize them for what they are gifts from God. That's what Calvin is saying on the quote on the cover of the worship guide. It's not a blade of grass or a color in all of creation that was not intended to bring us joy. God created them for that. This doesn't always mean life's going to be easy. He says at the end of verse 9 that the days of darkness will be many. Yet we're still supposed to rejoice continually, even in the midst of those. I think if we take time to look, even when things get really bad, we look around and pay attention, there are small things that we can be grateful and thankful for. There's still joy to be had. So life is meant to be enjoyed. Okay, so what does that actually look like? How do we go about doing that? If you look with me at verse 9, it says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. 
So now he shifts to this first command. He says, rejoice. So that's enjoy it and then express that joy. This is focused on a young person. So does that mean it doesn't pertain to the rest of us? Or I'll say to the rest of you, since I count myself as a young person. I don't think so. What he's saying is especially relevant for younger people because they have more of their lives ahead of them, barring anything happening, just the trajectory of life. They have more time in which to rejoice. They have physical advantages of youth and usually fewer ailments that might kind of impinge on that. However, I think it applies to all of us. If we let verse 8 as the preface kind of direct this, we see that if someone lives many years, he's to rejoice. So that would include elderly. Then I think youth is relative. So when I was a little kid, I thought a 20-year-old was old. And you turn 20 and you're like, a 30-year-old is really old. Now I'm 29, so that's changing. I think I'm going to bump it up to 50, so I've got a little bit longer before I have to change it again. But we just keep changing it, right? If you ask an 80-year-old, he's going to tell you a 60-year-old's young. It just keeps moving. And then finally, one of the things Koheleth is doing here is actually he's contrasting. So he does the light and the darkness. Then he does the young and then the old. So he's going to be talking about in chapter 12. So it's kind of this contrast that's still going on. So I think it applies to all of us, but especially to those who are younger. So something important to notice that through Koheleth, God commands us to rejoice. God is telling you to enjoy life and express that joy. How different is that from the way that our culture, or maybe even the way that we might understand God and Christianity? When I was younger, I viewed Christianity as kind of a list of things to do and a list of things not to do. And all the fun stuff was on the don't do list. I viewed God as one who wanted to withhold good things from me to kind of test my devotion to him. And if you don't live up to it, he's ready to pounce. And I remember thinking that if that's who God is and that's what Christianity is, then why would anyone want to follow him? Maybe some of you can relate to that. But Koheleth is telling us here that that is not who God is. As a result, that's not what Christianity is either. It's actually the exact opposite. He commands us to enjoy life because he loves us. It's meant to be good. He doesn't withhold good things from us. Though he does want to protect us from things that we might think are good that are actually harmful. He doesn't want to pounce on us. Instead, he loves us so much that he gave us his only son to die on a cross to save all who believe in him and to give them true life. No, God is not withholding. He's more generous than we could ever imagine. As we continue on, Kohala tells us four things to do for how to rejoice. The first two go together and then the last two go together. So let's look at the first two in verse 9. It says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. At first look, these look like kind of contradictory statements. You've got the, the big but there. 
you can do this, do what you want, but he's going to get you. Like God is ready to pounce. But it's so much better than that. I think one of the reasons that it looks like this is that the word but puts them in contrast. Right? We don't like to hear it. We kind of hear the first part and then we hear the but and kind of throw out the, throw out the first part. But the Hebrew literally says and, which I think is helpful. The stu- the, I don't think the two statements are in contrast at all. They actually go together. They complement one another. They build upon one another. So if you read it, Walk in the ways of your heart and know that for these things God will bring you into judgment. Seems a little less harsh, doesn't it? So how do we understand that first phrase then? It helps us to remember that Ecclesiastes is part of the canon of Scripture. That it's written primarily to God's people. It's written to people who are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind with all your strength. This love for God that we're supposed to have is in the background of everything that Koheleth teaches. It can't be ignored. If we ignore that, then we'll kind of end up up off base on what Koheleth is actually teaching the Israelite people. Ecclesiastes is also part of wisdom literature. It's helping people to grow in wisdom. One way to think about wisdom is or to describe it as, you can describe wisdom in the Bible as skill in the art of godly living. It's not just knowing the right things, knowing what to do. We often, I think, conflate it with discernment. But wisdom is enacted. It changes actually how we live and what we do. It's actually great foolishness to know the right thing and not to do it. It's the opposite. So if we're with Koheleth, if we're getting better at godly living, if we're loving God with all of our hearts, then to walk in the ways of our hearts is actually doing what is pleasing to God. So Augustine paraphrase, is paraphrased as saying this. He says, Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. I think that really nails that first part, Right? If you've been married for any amount of time, you've probably experienced this to some extent, that you're willing to change some behaviors to please your spouse, things that you wouldn't have enjoyed before, you actually now enjoy doing because you love them. That's kind of what it's talking about here. And that second part, and know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That should reinforce Reinforce and make it crystal clear that the first part is excluding sinful desires. That's not even on the table. And it also says that there are consequences for our actions. Good and bad. We'll see in in the conclusion that God judges both the good and the bad. So it should give us hope that while we might not see it in this life, Justice will be done, and our good deeds will actually be vindicated. It's a good thing for us. These, th- these two things need to be held together. We can't hold on to one and let go of the other. But I think that's something that we tend to do a lot. What I described a little while ago about how I viewed Christianity is kind of legalism. Obedience without love and grace. It's just focusing on the judgment. 
But Koheleth tells us here that that's not how you enjoy life. We need to walk in the ways of our heart and the sight of our eyes. We're not doing it just because we're supposed to. We can't only be concerned with the judgment. So when I was younger, we went through this phase in my house where anytime my mom told us to do something, we'd have to say, yes, mom, I'd be glad to, and then go do it. And I would do that. I would say it, and I would go do it. I wasn't happy to do it most of the time. (laughs) But I would do it because I didn't want to be punished for being disobedient. And then one day, my uh, oldest brother, she tells him to do something, and he says, I'll do it, but I'm not glad to. And you told us not to lie, so I'm not going to lie about it. (laughs) And thankfully, my mom handled it pretty graciously and said, you're right. You don't have to say that anymore. <laughs> Instead of kind of flipping off on the other end the way she could have or the way I might have expected. But what she wanted was right. What she wanted was for us to be glad to be doing what we should be doing. What she's after is what he's telling us here. But we can't go the other way either. We can't forget about judgment and just focus on doing whatever we want. We can't take our sin lightly and presume upon God's grace. It's a glorious truth that if you trust in Christ, all your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. But if you think that because your sins are forgiven, you can continue to sin and just do whatever you want, then you really need to consider and think about whether you trust in Christ. And whether you actually understand that your sin cost him his life. We can't take it lightly. We can't presume upon his grace. If we do that, we're not going to enjoy life either. Did you notice the theme as we talked through both of these ideas? That to enjoy life, we have to do these things. But in doing these things, it's actually, we have to remember God. Let's look at the other two sets of commands. Verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. Makes sense, right? Vexation and pain don't really gel with joy. They usually hinder it. Not that we can't have joy in the midst of pain and sorrow. But they do kind of impinge on it. So we're told to get rid of them as much as we can. We couple it with before. It means through means that are pleasing to God. We can't just do whatever we want. You don't drink your sorrows away. You don't do drugs to avoid the pain or to avoid thinking about things. That's off the table. But through any means that might be pleasing to God, try to remove those things. And if we can't get rid of them, then avoid dwelling on them. But that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? For me, this really brings to mind uh, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you heard that before? Have you been told that? If you're 
anxious or worried about something, pray more. Then you'll have peace. But what happens sometimes? You pray about it and then you're just worried more about it. Am I the only one that's done that? It's not this magic bullet. We like those formulas though, don't we? If you do this, then this will happen. I can make that happen, so this will be the result. Perfect. I got it. Go me. Right? We like that. The problem with that is that's not how it works. That's not actually even what the text says there. It says instead of being anxious, pray to God. It doesn't say pray and it's going to be done away with. So how can we do that? We usually skip right over this part. And the way we divide verses sometimes don't help. It says, right before, do not be anxious. It says, the Lord is at hand. We can do it because God is with us. Not because of something we do, but because God is with us. And the peace that we get isn't a peace that we muster up, not a peace that we make happen. It's not just some therapeutic feeling we get because we talked it out. It's actually peace from God that he gives you. That you remember God. That by his spirit he is with you. And that he loves you. And yes, you do pray. And then he hasn't, as much as, as good as it, as it is that he's given us his spirit, we're still not even left just with that. He's also given us Christ's body, the church, us right here. To help care for us. To help carry our burdens. It's a lot of times it's hard for us to help carry those things if you won't let us. So how do we enjoy life? We follow our desires, knowing that God will judge. We remove vexation and pain. But we've seen that all these things are built upon remembering God. Which Kohelath now makes explicit. If you look with me at verse, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. As I read that the first time, there were a couple questions that came to mind. What does it mean to remember? And then why does Koheleth use Creator here instead of God? This is the only time he uses Creator. He's, he's used God 40 times. So that, there has to be a reason for that. To remember is more than to recall. It's not like, I remember your name, Lacey, because I forgot it earlier. It's not just thinking about things from time to time. It's not like my college friends that I remember them and reminisce about good times that we had from time to time. It's more active than that. It's more like remembering that you have to pick your kid up from soccer practice, <laughs> or you have to pick your kid up from the airport, or your friend. I don't know if kids fly on their own now. I guess if they're older, they do. You remember it. Intellectually, it's there. You know it. And then you schedule things around it. You drive there to pick them up. You act on it. It's not just cognitive function. It's enacted. One commentator puts it like this. He says, to remember your creator means to bring to mind daily what your creator has done for you and to act on that knowledge. 
Like the rest of the Christian life, it's no mere intellectual exercise. It actually affects the way that we live. And the effects are what we just talked about. Loving God, desiring and seeking to do His will, and resting in His presence. So we're going to talk about why He uses Creator here as we go through the rest of this passage. We're going to see that the rest of this passage, apart from the final refrain, actually focuses on when we should remember our Creator. He repeats the word before three times. So the effect is that you remember your Creator before this. Remember your Creator before this. Remember your Creator before this. So let's look at them. First, in verse 1, Remember your Creator before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The word evil there can have a couple senses of meaning. I don't think it's moral evil that we're talking about here. I think it's more like days of trouble. This is likely connected with 11.8, where the days of darkness will be many. Where days get difficult, things get hard. He's probably talking about approaching old age, where it's just kind of one thing after another. It just keeps happening. Things keep going. So we remember our Creator before that. Because when these things start to happen, it's harder to think about it. It's harder to remember when things are difficult. And if we remember before, it sets up this foundation to actually move into these difficult times. We're resting on God. Remember your Creator before the days of trouble come. Next, in verses 2 to 5, we're to remember our Creator before old age overtakes you. This section of the poem describes old age overtaking a person. Different people take the specifics of this in different ways, but the overall picture is pretty clear. It's our minds and our bodies just break down. It says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, take that as your mental acuity, before that goes down, before it decreases, and the clouds return after the rain. You just had a storm and the clouds are back, ready to hit you again. Just one thing after another. You've seen this with, with people you love that have grown old. It seems to be one health thing after another. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, our legs grow weak. They often get bow-legged. And the grinders cease because they are few. We're losing our teeth. We can't chew. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. Get cataracts on your eyes. Lose your vision. We have medical advances that alleviate some of these things. You get dentures, fake teeth, glasses, laser surgery. But these things still keep happening. The doors on the street are shut. Shuts off the noise to the street. We're losing our hearing. The sound of grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. You're not sleeping well, so you wake up at the lightest noise. The daughters of song are brought low, losing your singing voice. It's going away. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. They're afraid of falling. Right? When we're young, little kids bounce up like nothing happened. Like you start laughing so they don't cry, right? You can trick them that way, kind of. And then you get to be my age, you're like, eh, kind of hurt, but I'm all right. <laughs> you get older, and a fall can be devastating. The almond tree blossoms, goes white, your hair. 
I've got too much of that for how old I am, but it happens. The grasshopper drags itself along. You used to be able to jump around and leap, and now you're barely moving. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about in the streets. People are already lamenting the fact that they know you're about to die. We're to remember our Creator before old age overtakes us. Finally, in verses 6 and 7, we're to remember our Creator before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. It describes death. So often water is a picture of life. We have it just being spilled out here. Our bodies return to dust. Spirit, our breath returns to God. Remember your creator before death overtakes you. It's too late. You can't do it after that. So in order to truly enjoy life, we must remember our creator before it's too late. So why does he use creator? Because it takes us back to creation. It shows us very clearly the way things are supposed to be. It sets them in stark contrast to what Koheleth has been showing us. What is that? God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to worship him, to spread his image, and to enjoy him perfectly. Everything was perfect. Everything made sense. Things were the way they were supposed to be. But Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They rejected his rule and reign over their lives. And as a result, Adam and Eve's relationships with each other, with God, with the rest of creation, and even with themselves internally, are broken and frustrated. And then the ultimate penalty of that sin is death. That's what he just talks about in verses 6 and 7 there. Death. And all of us have inherited Adam's sin. And then we've sinned our own. We've rejected God's rule and reign over our own lives. And we've put other things in that place. And so we all die. Remembering our creator means remembering that God made a good world. Where we weren't supposed to die. But where we would perfectly enjoy life for all of eternity. In his presence. It also reminds us that we're the ones responsible for spoiling it. It reminds us that we're not the creator. We're not the one that's in control. And what Koheleth is describing here, especially in verses 6 and 7, is actually creation being undone. Creation being reversed. The effect of sin, where in Genesis 2, God, God takes the dust and forms Adam's body and breathes life into him. Kohela says that our bodies return to dust, and our spirit, or that word can be translated breath, returns to God. He's not talking about heaven or eternity. He's talking about creation being undone. The, God, the breath that God breathed into us just goes back to him. The dust returns to where it was. And Kohelis' description of our bodies returning to dust 
closely echoes God's curse on Adam in the next chapter. In Genesis 3, 19, God says to Adam, By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. But, this is the right place to use but, but in his mercy, God did not abandon his creation. Instead, four verses earlier, Genesis 3.15, God's cursing the serpent who tempted Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You will bruise, he will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. And God fulfilled that promise by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins and to restore them along with the rest of creation to its original purpose, that he became our sin for us to save all who trust in him. If you have trusted in Christ today, then he's already saved you from the penalty of your sin. He's taken that upon himself on the cross. And he rose again from the dead on the third day for your justification. And he has given you his righteousness. And one day he will return And remove the effects of sin. Where he'll wipe away every tear. And there will be no more mourning. Or death or crying or pain. Everything we just talked about in Ecclesiastes. In that chapter 12. It's no more. Where everything will be made as it was meant to be. Where we'll perfectly enjoy life in his presence for all of eternity. If you have not trusted in Christ today, trust in him. Confess your sin. Admit that you've done things wrong, that you've disobeyed and done things you shouldn't have done. And turn from that and turn to Christ. Believe in him that he died for you to save you. And these things can be true for you as well. Because he is coming back one day. And know that God will judge. But until then, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Life is hard and things don't always make sense. But we trust in a creator who is in complete control of everything that's going on. He knows how everything fits together even though we don't. It's all part of his plan. And we want to see that, right? We want to know, but we don't get to. And everything is vanity to that end. It's not going to help us make sense of it. We want to be told answers. We want to know why things are happening to us. We don't get those answers. Instead, we simply trust him knowing that he is good and just and powerful and that he loves you. He will bring every deed into judgment. He will make all things right. But in the meantime, you can truly enjoy life with all its difficulties. 
as you remember your Creator and what He has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christ, for what He has done for us. We ask that You would help us to remember You, to love You, and to follow You all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.